Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, the first chapter. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read verse 1 because it's introductory to the whole chapter and the book itself, rather. It says, The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This shows the content of this book. Isaiah is divided up into at least three parts. You have the earlier prophecies cover chapters 1 through 35. And then you have the historical parentheses. And actually the book of Hezekiah, some attribute to verse, chapters 39, 36 through 39 to Hezekiah, which definitely is uh, dominated with uh, Hezekiah's deliverance from Assyria and deliverance from sickness and, and Hezekiah's sin. So chapters 36 through 39, I can give you these later. And then uh, the last part of the book of um, Isaiah from chapters 40 through 66 are the latter prophecies. So you have the prophecies, the first prophecies, and then the parentheses, and then the latter prophecies. And if you want to divide the whole book up in that fashion, you could. Under the first prophecies, you have prophecies of condemnation. And there are several things under that. Prophecies of condemnation. And I won't give you all the details there because it would be uh, rather uh, hard for you to grasp it at the moment. And then under the second part, the historical material having to do with this, this parenthesis, chapters 36 through 39, and then the prophecies of comfort actually are the latter prophecies. So you have condemnation on the first part of the book and, and comfort at the last part of the book. I could show you many parallels. We could talk about the uh, various arguments as to the authorship of the book of uh, Isaiah. And there's a lot of things we could talk about. Uh, you can find lengthy material that will discuss and argue against and for the prophecies of Isaiah as to being his content, authorship of Isaiah or someone else and others or maybe two or three Isaiahs and two, at least two and Hezekiah involved. And I won't go into all that, but I can tell you by the witness of the New Testament to Isaiah's prophecy that he probably was the author of all of it, maybe with the exception of those three chapters, 6 through 39, that we mentioned that Hezekiah is prominent in those chapters. So it's the book of the prophet of Isaiah. And uh, the authorship, let me just give you, there are multiplied references in the New Testament that, that will prove uh, that Isaiah's prophecy is quoted by John the Baptist, by Matthew, by uh, Luke, by John, by Paul. But I want to give you one special one by the, by the, uh, in the Gospel of John that John quotes that will show us both the first and the latter part of Isaiah in one prophecy that would indicate that Isaiah, and it speaks of his person, is the, prophecy, is the prophet that's mentioned in the first part of the book as well as the last part of the book. And I want you to read with me John chapter 12, and let's read verses 38 through 41. We'll see the person, we'll see the second part of the book of Isaiah quoted first, and then the, the book of uh, Isaiah, the first part of it, quoted secondly. Tying the both together to show us that the one prophecy indicates the person of Isaiah. Now then, in chapter 12 of John, beginning with verse 38. Now Jesus is saying here, 
that the saying of Esaias the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake. Now, he calls Isaiah the prophet right here, uh, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, which would be the latter part of the prophecies of Isaiah. And so Jesus here says that it's, it's spoken by Esaias or Isaiah the prophet. So definitely Jesus refers to the latter part of the book as, as uh, Isaiah being the author. Now then let's go on. In the same passage of Scripture, he says in verse 39, Therefore they could not believe because that Esaias said again, He hath blinded, look at this, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. And that's in Isaiah chapter 6, the first part of the book of Isaiah. And it says in chapter, uh, then it goes on to say, These things said Esaias when he saw his glory and spake of him. We know that when Isaiah saw his glory, when he saw the glory of God, it says in chapter 6 verse 1, In the year, listen, in the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw also the Lord. Remember, it was in the days of Uzziah, the first verse that we mentioned tonight, in the days of Uzziah. But he says in the year, chapter 6, verse 1, that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled his temple. And he saw the glory of God right there. And so Jesus is referring to two incidents, at least, in the book of Isaiah, quoting first from Isaiah 53 verse 1, and then Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 beginning, so that it proves that Isaiah is the, the author of the prophet of the first part of Isaiah and of the last part of Isaiah. So we're not going to go into all the details and arguments about uh, scholarship here and authorship of the book of Isaiah, but rather I'm going to get into the meat of the first chapter and we'll start uh, preaching and teaching on it as we see it in the first chapter. But there's a multiplied number of references where John the Baptist refers to the one that was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet. He quotes from the 40th chapter how that uh, he, I mean, that John refers to John the Baptist as the one that would be the voice crying in the wilderness and so on and so forth to prepare the way of the Lord. And there are multiplied numbers of references. And Matthew quotes it. And Paul quotes some things in Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10 of the same uh, book and the first and the last that proves what we're talking about. That Isaiah then is the prophet and is the author of the book of Isaiah. So we'll get into it now. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, verse 1, we read again the content of the book. It says, The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. It tells the time of his ministry, about 800 years before the birth of Christ. And we find that uh, it uh, corresponds to the time of these kings. And he had a long ministry covering a great number of years. Uh, I might say here that it says the vision of Isaiah. Back in the book of Numbers, God said he would reveal to his prophets in a vision or in a dream in the Old Testament. 
In Numbers 12, verse 6, he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. So God made himself known to many of the prophets in visions in the time past. Uh, He does not speak to us that way now today. The Bible tells us that God who in sundry times, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God who is sundry times and in diverse manners, times in times past, spake unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days, how does he speak to us now? Spoken unto us in his Son. In his Son. And we have the full revelation of God's Word now. And the Bible teaches that we, we let God's Word speak to us. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to the Word of truth. And therefore we... Uh, study the Word, and God's Word speaks to us as a letter and as an inspired Word and by His Holy Spirit that helps us to see and illuminates that Word into us. Now then, in this first chapter, you have the title of the book and its contents in verse 1. We've just given you that. But in verses 2 through uh, 15, you have the moral and religious decline of the nation. Let me just give you this brief outline of this first chapter, and then we'll come back and study it verse by verse. And in verses, uh, the next section, if I can find it, is, well, the first one was the title of the book and its contents, and that's in verse 1. The second thing was the moral and religious decline of the nation, that's chapter, uh, verses 2 through 15. And then verses 16 through 20, you have Jehovah's exhortation, an appeal. And then, verses 21 through 24, you have the result of obstinate refusal to the things of, of the Lord that He had given them. Obstinate refusal. And then the last section of this chapter is the promise of restoration. You'll find that in verses 25 through 31. As we deal with these, we will speak of them as we go along. Let's look at this moral and religious decline of the nation. Look at verse 2. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Now, this will begin our verse-by-verse commentary on it. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. It's as if God calls the whole universe, heavens and earth, look here, to a trial, to attend a trial. With God as the judge... And Judah and Jerusalem as the defendants. What does he say? Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nursed and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. And remember, it's against, in verse 1, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So God says, I'm going to call heaven and earth to witness. And the charge against them is rebellion. It says, they have rebelled against me. They had failed to show any gratitude in verse 3. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. He says here, he's as much as saying that a domesticated animal, even dumb animals, can show more gratitude than his own people showed to him. Isn't it sad that God had to use... Look, the ass... Knoweth his owner, and uh, the ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. 
The ingratitude of God's people. They didn't know. They didn't consider. And that shows, by the way, you say, well, that's Israel of old. We have people that belong to the Lord today that are ungrateful. Why is it that people today are ungrateful that claim, uh, you know, we claim to be Christians and we're God's children, and yet we do not consider, we do not even recognize Him any more than than an animal would recognize Him. And beloved, that's a sad thing. And that's what God was getting at here is the moral and religious decline of the nations and especially of, of Judah and Jerusalem. And we have, and you know, He speaks to His own people. Later on, we're going to find that other nations rebelled against God and other nations did not consider. You know, that's rather expected that they would not. The heathen nations, why should they? They hadn't been taught and privileged the things that that, uh, Israel had been given. I mean, if you take a person that's never known anything about Christianity, a person that's never known anything about Jesus Christ who died for our sins on the cross of Calvary, a person that is not acquainted and having been taught of the spiritual aspects of God's Word and the, and the great sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross to redeem us to Him, uh, to God by Himself. Well, you can expect them not to be grateful because they don't know any better. I mean, it's kind of natural. It's kind of uh, accepted that they would be ungrateful because they do not know God. But for God's people who have been saved by grace, who have known that the Bible teaches that Jesus came down from heaven and shed His blood on the cross of Calvary to redeem us to God. And the Bible says, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Redemption and forgiveness of sins are joined together because we have forgiveness of sins because of the redeeming blood of Christ. Because of His sacrifice on the cross. And for you and I to become ungrateful is a sin, is a terrible sin. If you read Romans chapter 1, it tells about those that knew not God, and it says, neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, and so on and so forth, about a wicked world in times past. Well, we have a wicked world in times present, too, with men ungrateful. Okay, in verse 4, he begins, verses 4 through 6, these people are guilty of aggravated iniquity. In other words, they did not just sin, they they were aggravated. It's aggravated iniquity. He says in verse 4, all sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, Children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. They're going away from God. They were rebelling against God. They were a uh, people, a sinful nation, a seed of evildoers. They were corruptors. The people are guilty of aggravated iniquity in turning their backs on the Holy One. And God's chastening had not succeeded even though the body is covered with wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. We read on down verse 6. In verse 5, notice, it says, Why should you be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. 
They were sick from, he says, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. They were just open wounds and sores. They were so sick. This is typical of their spiritual condition. This is exactly the, it, their bodily description here of how they've appeared was typical of their spiritual condition before God. And all because of God's chastening. And this strengthening that came in verse 5 was God's chastening hand upon them and still they didn't realize how far away they were from God. Isn't it terrible that God could bring such judgment because of rebellion and because they were they had provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger because they had gone back and they were a sinful nation and the people laden with iniquity and a seed of evildoers and their children that are corruptors and they had forsaken the Lord and provoked Him and God's chastening hand to rest so heavily upon them and yet they would not turn to God. Yet they didn't recognize it. You know, there's a lot of people today, and I hate to say it, that are in such situation that they do not realize that God is dealing with them. They just pay no attention to it, and God is dealing with them. And He wants them to turn. And sometimes He has to, has to deal in, in very uh, specific ways with certain individuals. You know, I can get out of line just a little bit, and I can say, I can find out God's telling me, get, get right, you know. It doesn't take very long. And if you've got a conscience... That, will, that is so quickened by the Holy Spirit that the first thing you do that's wrong, if it's the most small, the uh, minimal thing or small thing in the sight of the world, it's a big thing in your sight because it means a step of, of broken fellowship. So, friend, when you have inside of you a conviction, your conscience saying it's wrong, and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God saying it's wrong, saying that you need that your fellowship with God is broken. Brother, you better get that thing fixed right away. You better uh, say, confess your sin to God. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, listen carefully. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, I like to, every night before I go to bed, I like to wipe the slate clean for that day. How do you do it? Go before God in confession. Say, God... All the mistakes that I've made, all of my sins and shortcomings, and then if I know of particular things wherein I've spoken an evil word or an angry word or whatever, bring it out and say, God, please forgive all of that through Christ's blood. And He will do it. And it's not yours to do the forgiving. You know, a lot of people pray that way and then they go away and say, I wonder if God did. He says, if we, that's our part, what? Confess our sins. He, that's His part. He's what? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And He's the one that does the forgiving. But it's your business to do the confessing. And when you do that, you ought to go away instead of carrying that burden with you. You know, we sing a song, take your burdens to the Lord and leave them there. We ought to take our burdens to the Lord. He says, cast thy burden upon the Lord. Listen, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. That's the first scripture my little boy learned. Daryl. Isaiah 55 verse 22. And Peter says, 
casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. So let's learn that when we put our care upon Him, we can leave it alone. A lot of times we, we try to lay our burden upon the Lord and cast our cares upon the Lord, and then we turn around and we pick them up again, carry them off, and just bend over carrying them all the next day and all the next week, and maybe for months or maybe for years, and we go back and, and, and carry all those burdens of the past. No need to carry them, because you can get rid of them. You can unload every once in a while. Just get rid of them. And that's what we should do. He wants us to walk in freedom and in liberty. But you must confess them or you're still going to be burdened with them. As long as you're not confessing those sins, you'll still be burdened with them. Notice he says in verse 6, From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed, closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. If you have a marginal reference, the ointment says oil. This refers to the application of oil to the wounds or to its ingestion for medicinal purposes. You can compare where the Good Samaritan, he came along and found the man that was was left wounded and half dead, it says. And there he was in need of treatment. And it says he poured in, in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, he poured in oil and wine. It was a mixture that was made to, to, uh, as an antiseptic and then as a healing element. And it was a mixture that was very prominent in that day. He poured in oil and wine. We find that James says, anointing them with oil, the elders of the church, in the name of the Lord. And that anointing with oil is not what a lot of people think it is. It's not some kind of Catholic ritual that you go through. It's applying the oil to the wound or whatever is necessary in the medicinal means to bring about healing. Now, some may differ with me on that, and I've had a lot of people to do it, so it won't be any strange thing. But if you study the Bible, even... uh, Back in the book of Second Kings, let's see if I can find it. Chapter twenty. Let's let's find out something. Second Kings, chapter twenty. Let me read something. In those days, verse one. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. Here's a man. Hezekiah was sick unto death, and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him. The same prophet we're preaching from. Second Kings twenty, verse one. The son of Amos came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order. Isaiah says, Hezekiah, you set your house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. He had a sickness. He was sick unto death. Now listen carefully. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth. And with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. He repented. Hezekiah was a man that asking God to help. Hezekiah was sick unto death. And it came to pass before Isaiah was gone out into the middle of the court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, <clears throat> Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer. Now listen. What did God say to to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah? He says, I have heard thy prayer. I have seen thy tears. 
Behold, I will heal thee. God says, I'm going to heal you, Hezekiah. I will heal thee. Now listen carefully. This is important. On the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. I'm going to give you victory over your enemies. And I will defend this city for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, remember, God's going to heal Hezekiah. But what means does he use? And Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. And they took and laid it on the ball and he recovered. What did they do? They took the medicinal value of what was prescribed to lay upon the ball or whatever Isaiah's problem was. And it says, and he recovered. But you remember God says, I will heal thee, didn't he? But he did not exclude means. And Isaiah knew exactly what means God intended him to use. Isaiah said, he told Hezekiah to take a lump of figs. He took it, probably a poultice or something, and he made it and he put it on the ball and he recovered. So back in our text, Isaiah chapter 1, verse uh, 6, it says, From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Look in the book of Luke chapter 10. Verse 30, And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, Came where he was. I always like that statement. You've got to get where people are. You can't get on the other side and expect to do them any good. I imagine that priest and Levite says, Poor fellow, I hope he gets well. You know, but I don't have time to fool with it. Levite, you know, they did the same thing. Passed by on the other side. They didn't want to get involved. You know, people say, Don't get me involved in this. Who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? That's the whole point of this. Now look. And it says, And came where he was, and when he saw him, look, he had compassion on him. You know, God pity us if our well of compassion dries up and we don't have any compassion on the other fellow when he's in trouble or in need. Whatever the need is. Sickness or whatever the situation is. If we cannot have compassion... Jesus saw the multitudes and had compassion on them because what? They fainted as sheep having no shepherd. He had compassion on multitudes because they didn't have a leader. Because they, they were scattered abroad as sheep not having a shepherd. He said that sheep need a shepherd. And he says, and, and he said, said, pray that the Lord of harvest will send labors into his harvest. Pray that uh, there will be a shepherd for these sheep. Well, let's get back to this. It says, When he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him. He went to him. And bound up his wounds. Remember, it says, Isaiah, the wounds had not been bound up. Right? But he bound up his wounds, pouring in what? 
oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and uh, took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, <coughs> when I come again, I will repay thee. says, Now which of these three thinkest thou was neighbor, neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? And he said, and, uh, and he said, He that showed mercy on him, then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Who is your neighbor? The fellow in trouble is your neighbor. Who was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? The fellow that has need is your neighbor. And you and I, in this day and hour of, of selfishness, self-gratification, humanism, fellow says, let that fellow have his problem, you just take yours and don't, do not be concerned about the other fellows. And that's the way many are taught today. You and I ought to have compassion on those that are in need. And there are plenty that we can show compassion toward. That doesn't mean you take their full responsibility. I mean, when this man got well, I'm sure he was willing to... You know, if a fellow gets on his feet again, he's, he should be willing to, to take his own responsibilities. But when he's down, we should help. That's just the way it is. Alright, the next verse says, back in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 7, in verses 7 through 9, show us how the future is described as if it has already taken place and the terrible things that are going to happen. Look, it says, your country is desolate. God says... Is as if it were already desolate. Your cities are burned with fire, and they were going to be. And he says, Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. Strangers devour your land. And he says, It is desolate, as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, and as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Like a as a cottage or a lodge in a garden of cucumbers is like a crude temporary hut. The daughter of Zion, God's own, uh, sometimes the daughter of Zion speaks of, of Jerusalem or even Israel as a nation and the people that belong to Him and are so close to Him. And He says they're left, they're left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers. They're like a crude temporary hut. That's all that remains. And he said in verse 9, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. You know, God is concerned about the one little remnant that He can pull out of all that great wickedness that, that is in Jer Judah and Jerusalem. And he says, Except the Lord had left a small, a very small, notice it's not a small, a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. If there were not a small remnant of goodness in our nation, if there were not a small element of the population of this nation, the Christian aspect of this nation, I'd hate to think what God's judgment would be upon it. Wouldn't you? Did you know you and I and Christian people all over this nation are holding back the judgment of God upon a wicked uh, nation? I mean, it was only Lot. Lot and his family, and though Lot was already backslidden and away from God in, in the city of Sodom, it was only Lot and his family that held back the judgment until they were taken out on that wicked city. And it's only the Christian people in this nation, you, we better keep praying and keep right, because uh, God's judgment could fall upon us. This nation's 200 a few plus years old. Can you imagine? A very 
very short time of history. And we cannot see that God has tremendously blessed us. And yet people are willing to risk it all for the sake of sin and wickedness and idolatry and all the corrupt things that are done in our, in our nation. Risk it all. Beloved, it's a time for us to repent, isn't it? It's a time for God's people to, to pray that there will be people that will wake up and see where we stand with God. And so it says here, Except the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been likened to Gomorrah. Did you know that there are times that God compared His people to Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness, not because they were geographically located in that place. Look at Amos 4 verse 11, and I won't read the whole passage. Verses 6 through 11 tells us, but I'll just read verse 11 to pinpoint the thought of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's speaking of Israel and of his people. He says, I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet you have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. He said he had brought judgment, even as, as God would have judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but he says, still you would not return and repent. Look also in the book of Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8. It says this, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually, listen, spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Where was He crucified? Not in Sodom and not in Egypt, but in Jerusalem, where it had become so wicked as Sodom and Egypt. And so where also our Lord was crucified. And in the book of Revelation, the reference is made to, to Jerusalem. And to a place where God's people were residing that had become so wicked that it was symbolic. Uh, Sodom and, and Gomorrah and Egypt, the type of the world, was symbolic of, of that place at that time. And in the tribulation is when that will be and be brought to pass. And so in verse 9, it says, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. In verse 10, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our, of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. And he's going to tell them what he despises in their lack of repentance. Verses 10 through 15. We'll give you these verses and then we'll close. It says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? You see, uh, I am full of, your bur- of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or the lambs, uh, or of lambs or of he goats. Well, now, God had prescribed sacrifices, but He wanted true hearts along with those sacrifices. And so he was sick of them coming and offering sacrifices in a ritualistic way and yet not changing themselves. God despises ritual without reality. You can have all the ritual you want to, but if there's no reality, he doesn't want it. God despises sacrifices without obedience. If you want to offer sacrifices, he wants you to be obedient at the same time. And he despises gifts without the giver. And as long as people were living in sin, the temple service was insulting to God. The mixing of iniquity and solemn assembly is hateful to Him. Mere external religion is ever a a cloak to cover iniquity. 
People can be all they want to be on the outside, and if their inside is not affected, there's nothing changed. And I want to read the rest of these verses along with that line uh, down to verse 15, and you'll see that that's what I'm talking about. Let's pick up with verse uh, 11 again, and we'll read through 15 and then close. It says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks, or of lambs, or of he-goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more, look, bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. See, they had done all these things, but without any repentance. Now quickly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. Well, God appointed the feasts for Israel, didn't He? But He didn't appoint them feasts without any heart in it and without any repentance in their hearts. He says, They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, that's in prayer, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. We'll stop with ver- and pick up with verse 16 in the next passage. Next lesson, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. But listen carefully. God does not want us to mere, have mere ceremonialism or ritualism without repentance. God wants us to have repentance of heart. And then when we appear to worship before Him, and we have our sacred meetings uh, assembled in the church, He sees the spiritual aspect of our lives instead of just some show that we're putting on from the outside. God help every one of us to be real in heart and repentant in heart. And that's why I believe that even as we've already felt tonight during this singing and the specials and other things, that we have a Holy Spirit's presence in our church. And without the Holy Spirit's presence and guidance and power and love and